Good morning and welcome once again to the Family Bible Hour. Last week our brother Matt spoke on the book of the Revelation and the image of the beast in which he presented a unique and a very informative perspective on the topic. And I trust everyone who was here was greatly blessed and hopefully alarmed at the same time as to the reality of what the scriptures are teaching us. We need to awaken from our sleep of apathy and do more in the feeding of our souls on the word of God than we have been. We need to have more of a concern for the souls of our lost family members, neighbors, <clears throat> friends, or colleagues than we presently have. For the time of his return is just around the corner. And I'm afraid that other things have captivated our hearts and have left the Savior standing outside the door looking in. It should not be so. We all need to return to our first love, to serve him more faithfully. I'm certain we all have room for improvement. And with those thoughts in mind, let us turn to our main text for our sermon this morning. We're going to once again resume our studies on the book of Exodus and we'll use chapter 3 of this fine book as our main text for the message this morning. And thank you once again, Luke, for reading this passage in its entirety for us. We actually uh, gave you a little extra workload today just to see if you're up to it. Since you are, we won't hesitate in the future to load a little more on your shoulders, a message included. So if you still have your Bibles handy, would you all please turn with me to Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 to 22. And before we begin, we'll turn to the Lord in prayer first. Father, we are so thankful to be here again this morning. We are thankful that we have the word of God in our hands this morning so that we can read what it says, that we can be instructed by it, we can be admonished by it, and we can be encouraged by it. And we pray that as we open our text this morning, that the Spirit of God will be pleased to illuminate our understanding so that we might understand what thy will is for each one of us through this text, where we ask it all in the name of the Lord Jesus and for his glory. Amen. The third chapter of Exodus begins with Moses tending his father-in-law's sheep at the backside of the desert close to the foot of the mountain of God, which was called Horeb. Now, this is a most important scene. Moses here is about 80 years old. For the first 40 years of his life, Moses lived in Egypt, being raised as a son of Pharaoh, where he was given the best that Egypt had to offer. He was taught wisdom, culture, and leadership. He ate of the most scrumptious dishes and tasted of the richest delicacies that the royal state could afford. As the son of Pharaoh, he was witness to all of the workings of Egypt's judicial system and had intimate knowledge of their laws and of the execution of those laws. 
His name was respected and honored by the people of Egypt, for he was the son of Pharaoh and as such received royal treatment on a daily basis. But as the saying goes, blood is thicker than water. And so one day when Moses went out to his brethren and saw an Egyptian smiting one of his Hebrew brethren, Moses slew the Egyptian and hid him in the sand, we are told in Exodus 2.12. This, of course, led to his downfall from grace, and he, Moses, fled out of Egypt. For when Pharaoh heard this thing, he sought to slay him. Moses then sought refuge in the land of Midian, where he would be content to dwell for the next 40 years. We are told in Exodus 2.15. There he met and married Zipporah, the daughter of the priest of Midian. And it came to pass that Zipporah bare Moses a son whom he called Gershom. For the next 40 years, this fugitive Levite would learn the lowly life of a shepherd, which, if you recall from Genesis 46:34, was despised by the Egyptians. For we read, for every shepherd is an abomination unto the Egyptians. And humility is a necessary requirement of every servant of God. For without a humble spirit, God's grace cannot be demonstrated to others nor appreciated fully by the one for whom Christ died. And so Moses here, as the third chapter begins, is about 80 years old. For the last 40 years, he has been content to live the simple life in the land of Midian, tending sheep and raising a family. His former life in Egypt at this point may have only been a faint recollection, yet it was nonetheless still there. For one never totally forgets one's past, however hard one may try. And sometimes that is a good thing, for experience is vital to life. Good experiences bring contentment and calm the soul, whereas bad experiences also have their value in redirecting our paths for the future and sometimes even serve as a deterrent and a warning in future endeavors. But whether one heeds their warnings is another thing altogether. And as Moses was watching the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, he noticed a very unusual sight in verse 2. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in the flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. Please notice three things here. First, we are told that the angel of the Lord appeared unto him. Now, this is a very vital uh, point for our understanding here. The angel of the Lord was not just an angel. This is what we call a theophany, or a literal manifestation of God. In this case, it was Christ. Secondly, God or Christ appeared to Moses in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. We are told that our God is a consuming fire three times in Scripture. Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 24 says, For the Lord thy God is a consuming fire, even a jealous God. And then in Deuteronomy 9, 3, 
Understand therefore this day that the Lord thy God is he which goeth before thee. As a consuming fire, he shall destroy them, that is, his enemies, and he shall bring them down before thy face. And then finally in Hebrews 12, 29, the Apostle Paul also reminds us of the same thing. For our God is a consuming fire. And fire always speaks of judgment and holiness and righteousness when used in relation to God. And thirdly, Moses saw that though the bush burned, it was not consumed. We're reminded of the judgment seat of Christ before whom all believers will one day stand to give an account of how we served him and what motives we had. 1 Corinthians 3, 12 to 15 tells us, Now if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Well, dear friend, I ask you today, what will God's fire of judgment upon you and your service for him reveal that day? Will your work for him be burned away because it was built with hay, wood, and stubble? Are you as a Christian taking your service for him seriously? Are you living for him or for self? Are there other gods before him? The God of sports or entertainment, the God of money, the God of pleasure, etc. Does he have preeminence in your life? Or do you allow other things to take priority over your service for him? We all fail from time to time and slip up, but this needs serious correction and effort on a daily basis. We, like Moses, need to stand before the burning bush of God and remind ourselves that he is indeed a consuming fire, and we must not take him lightly, nor his word. Verse 3, Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here am I. Notice here, please, that it was God who called out to Moses, not the other way around. God, who is sovereign and omniscient, knows every heart when it is ready to hear him and to heed his call to serve. God always finds the most interesting way of getting our attention and the most interesting place from which to call. I, too, distinctly recall the first time that the Lord, through a quiet and a gentle thought, called me. It was in the quiet of my garden while I was fondly gazing at my apple tree. And though it would be a few years before 
I would get saved and serve him, I too, like many, would first have to go through some very difficult and challenging circumstances before I yielded myself to him. And so here we see Moses responding, here am I. That is what Abraham said to the angel of the Lord in Genesis 22:11, when he, the angel, stopped him from sacrificing Isaac. That is what Jacob answered when the angel of the Lord called out to him to encourage him during his flight from Laban's house in Genesis 31:11. That is what young Samuel answered in 1 Samuel 3, 4, when the Lord first called him. That too was Isaiah's response in Isaiah 6, 8, when the Lord called out to him seeking a man who would faithfully carry out his calling. It is both a wonderful thing and a frightening thing at the same time when God calls, for it is not something that one can ignore. And yet when one answers the call, one can be certain that the journey home will be filled with many a marvelous things as well as many a difficult thing. Verse 5, And he said, Draw not nigh hither, put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place wherein thou standest is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. Oh, that the saints of God would come to realize experientially the holiness of our awesome God. There would be so much more that we would be able to accomplish in his name. Moses hid his face. Why? Because he was afraid to look upon God, who is holy. Joshua 2, when he met the Lord in Joshua 5, 14, experienced this same fear. And he said, Nay, but as captain of the host of the Lord am I come, now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and did worship and said unto him, What saith my Lord unto his servant? Once God has our undivided attention, great things can be accomplished. God then reveals to Moses his intent. He tells Moses that he, God, has not only seen the affliction of his people Israel in Egypt, but that he has heard their cry and knows their sorrow and that he was going to deliver them out of Egypt. Not only that, but he was also going to bring them into a land which he promised their fathers, a land flowing with milk and honey onto a land in Canaan, verses 7 to 8. And then also, in verse 10, God tells Moses, Come now, therefore, and I will send thee unto Pharaoh, that thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Now please notice here Moses' reaction. And some expositors have misinterpreted his words greatly. Remember that Moses had been living for 40 years in the desert now as a shepherd. He had been out of touch with Egyptian life. 
He was no longer the young, vibrant, confident young man that he was while he was under Pharaoh's care. He had committed a murder. He was a fugitive. He had now found a peaceful, though a hard life here in the land of Midian. And no one in Moses' circumstances would be eager to go back to Egypt under those circumstances, let alone try to bring an entire nation out of Egypt. The logistics of such a feat were impossible. However, with God, nothing is impossible. He is the God of impossibilities. And this lesson Moses would learn experientially in the next and last 40 years of his life. Thus, when Moses responds with, Who am I that I should go unto Pharaoh, and that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt? He responds with an honest and a humble heart. For there is no way that one man is capable of such a feat. But God is also omniscient and knows the end from the beginning and assures Moses that he, God, will be with him throughout the whole procedure. Then Moses inquires of him a second time in verse 13, Whom shall I say sent me when the people of Israel ask? And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. And God said moreover unto Moses, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, hath sent me unto you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial unto all generations. When we are sent to do something, we need authorization. Who authorized you to do this or that? We need a higher authority to authenticate our mission. And so God tells Moses to say that I am that I am sent you. Tell them that the eternally self-existent and self-sufficient God sent you. The one who had no beginning sent you. He is the God of Abraham Isaac and Jacob. Notice, he is still the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not was. The Lord Jesus said in Matthew twenty-two thirty-two, referring to himself, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. What did he mean by that, that God is the God of the living. He meant that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are still alive in soul and in spirit, awaiting the resurrection of the body. And as such will one day see all his promises be fulfilled. Thus, he is the God of the living and not of the dead. And so Moses is instructed in the next seven verses, verses 16 to 22, to go into Egypt, gather all the elders of the people of Israel and tell them that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob sent you to deliver them out of Egypt and to bring them into a land flowing with milk and honey. 
But then in verse 18, God tells him that though the elders will believe you and will go with you to the Pharaoh, that he, that is Pharaoh, will not let you go until I stretch out my hand and smite Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in the midst thereof. And after that, he will let you go. Furthermore, says the Lord, I will cause the children of Israel to gain favor in the sight of all the Egyptians, so that when they finally leave, the Egyptians will give them jewels of silver and jewels of gold and raiment. And ye shall put them upon your sons and upon your daughters, and ye shall spoil the Egyptians. That, dearly beloved, is exactly what happened, as we shall see in the next few chapters of Exodus. And so we come to the end of the third chapter of Exodus, a very short chapter, but yet a very profound one. But as always, before I step down from this platform, I must ask you, where do you stand before the God of Abraham, God of Isaac and Jacob? The great I am, who is none other than our Lord Jesus Christ, have you ever heeded his call and yielded your life to him? Have you ever realized your greatest need, the need to have all of your sins forgiven? For the Bible tells us that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. And that there is none righteous, no, not one, Romans 3.10. And that neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Acts 4.12 Oh, dear friends, the Bible is so clear. There is no other name that can save us. Not Joseph Smith, not Krishna, not Mohammed, not the Watchtower, not the Pope. No one but Jesus of the Bible, the great I am, the only one who went to the cross of Calvary and took upon himself the sins of the entire world and paid the price fully for the redemption of all our souls. But, but, we must by faith acknowledge our sins, repent of those sins, and by faith receive him as our Savior and Lord. For Ephesians 2, 8 to 9 tells us, For by grace, by grace are ye saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works. There's nothing we can do. Not of works, lest any man should boast. And so I ask you again, where do you stand? Are you in Christ or out of Christ? Are you saved or still lost? There is no in-between. And if you're not certain, won't you turn to him today and turn from your sins while there is still yet time? Believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Acts 16.31. Let's pray. Father, we thank thee so much for the word of God. We thank thee that thou hast inspired it, that thou hast promised to preserve it. 
And we are thankful this morning that we have it in our very own hands to study, to read, and to know our God and our Savior. Father, we thank thee for this story of Moses and the burning bush, and we pray that we can apply the lessons to our own lives. And again, Father, if the Lord be not come, may it please thee to bring us together next Lord's Day around his table, for we ask it in his name and for his glory. Amen. Make as much noise as we want. And you like the preacher. <laughs>